about how Andrew Wiles inspires me, I first need to talk about Pierre de Fermat. Pierre Fermat was born in France in 1607 as the son of a wealthy merchant. There is little record of his childhood, so we don't know exactly what his early education looked like, but as a wealthy boy with an aristocratic mother, it's a safe bet to say he received a typical upper-class education. We know that he had a gift for languages, being fluent in classical Greek, Latin, Italian, Spanish and Octillian. At the age of just 18, Fermat graduated from the University of Orléans with a degree in civil law. So Fermat became a lawyer and in his spare time studied mathematics as a hobby. Then, in 1630, Fermat used his inheritance to buy a position at the High Court of Toulouse. This meant that he became nobility. Pierre Fermat became Pierre de Fermat, and, more significantly, Fermat's new job set him up financially for life. He could support his wife, their children, and use his free time to pursue mathematics with great enthusiasm. Mathematics was very much a hobby to Fermat. Throughout his life, he refused to publish his work, only sharing his mathematics via letters, and sometimes sending entire papers to friends without keeping a copy for himself. The only work published in his lifetime was done so anonymously. As a young man, Fermat's mathematics was significantly shaped by a man called Francois Viette, whose rather clunky notation Fermat adopted. Notation being a system of symbols used to represent mathematics. Fermat was a brilliant mathematician, who has made huge contributions to fields including, but definitely not limited to, number theory, analysis and calculus. It's with a certain amount of frustration that I wonder what he might have achieved if he'd published his work, or on many occasions, even actually bothered to write down a proof to his insightful theorems. As I've already mentioned, Fermat's letter writing is the main way we know about his work today. In the 17th century, mathematicians were generally very secretive about their work. A man called Marin Massain believed that this was a huge problem for the field, that the development of mathematics was being hampered by the lack of open communication. Mersenne began corresponding with Fermat in 1636, and that was how Fermat's influence as a mathematician began to spread. Mersenne encouraged Fermat to talk to other mathematicians, and even to begin collaborating on ideas. Most of Fermat's surviving mathematics is in the form of papers and letters which were written after this date, so perhaps we have Mersenne to thank for the great developments that Fermat made in mathematics. Significantly, Fermat's work was important in the development of calculus, which is an incredibly powerful field of mathematics, instrumental in areas like engineering, medicine and statistics. Although Fermat's methods were not fully developed, Isaac Newton, the scientist who is often credited with the invention of calculus, said he was guided by Fermat's work. Despite all his brilliance, and inarguable influence on mathematical development, 
Fermat was remarkably unenthusiastic about the rigour that is usually so important to modern mathematicians. He didn't want to develop mathematics so much as he wanted to set obnoxious challenges to his fellow mathematicians. He was playing, exploring, socialising, and in doing so he progressed the field immeasurably. I think he very much suits the title, The Prince of Amateurs, which was first given to him by E.T. Bell. After Fermat's death in 1665, his son published a version of the 3rd century text Arithmetica with his father's annotations. One of these annotations became a puzzle that held the imagination of mathematicians for centuries. It was a fairly simple statement, although it can be difficult to explain maths without an accompanying whiteboard to scribble on, so please bear with me for this short section if you find spoken maths hard to follow. Fermat claimed that there are no integers such that a to the power of n plus b to the power of n is equal to c to the power of n for any powers of n greater than 2. There are a huge amount of numbers where we can do this for n is equal to 1. For example, 1 plus 2 is equal to 3. And you might remember Pythagoras' equation from school, the method for finding the lengths of sides in a right angle triangle. And when we choose n is equal to 2, the equation becomes Pythagoras' equation. A numerical example is 3 to the power of 2 plus 4 to the power of 2 is equal to 25, or 5 to the power of 2. But Fermat's last theorem says that for any values of n greater than 2, it is no longer possible to find solutions. To write a mathematical proof, you need to show that without a doubt the claim you have made is true. There are, ironically, countless methods of doing this. Some proofs consist of a single line of airtight logic, and others have to spend pages of exploration of individual cases. In mathematics, something can only be considered proved if it is without a doubt correct. This is different to other sciences in that, unless something has gone very wrong in the approval process, in mathematics there should be absolutely no potential for somebody to come back to a proven theorem and say it's incorrect. Alongside his statement, Fermat had written, I have discovered a truly marvellous proof of this, which this margin is too narrow to contain. This simple note has been the springboard for countless hours of mathematical endeavour. Mathematicians first worked on the assumption that the brilliant Fermat had indeed found a proof, but as the centuries went on, many began to believe that Fermat could not have possibly done this. Surely somebody would have replicated his success eventually. And when it finally was proved, the mathematics used would have been completely beyond Fermat. It was mathematics that simply did not exist when he was alive. Many big names in mathematics have made attempts at proving Fermat's fascinating puzzle. Often mathematicians will break big problems into smaller cases to make them easier to deal with. This is what happened with Fermat's last theorem. In the 18th century, the mathematician Euler claimed to have a proof for the case when n is equal to 3, but it contained a logical fallacy that made it incorrect. Sophie Germain made a great deal of progress by breaking down the theorem 
into many more subcases. In 1847, Lemay even claimed to have proved Fermat's last theorem for all cases, but unfortunately, he was mistaken. And there have been a huge number of false proofs published for Fermat's last theorem. Over 1,000 false proofs were published in the four years between 1908 and 1912. Although these false proofs frequently weren't actually helpful to mathematical development, sometimes the concepts that were inspired and developed in various pursuits for proof were hugely useful to mathematics. And on top of that, the attention inspired an interest in number theory in those who might previously not have considered it. The mathematician Andrew Wiles, who was born on the 11th of April 1953, was inspired as a child by a book about the theorem. I grew up in Cambridge in England, and my love of mathematics dates from those early childhood days. I loved doing problems in school. I'd take them home and make up new ones of my own. But the best problem I ever found, I found in my local public library. I was just browsing through the section of math books, and I found this one book, which was all about one particular problem, Fermat's last theorem. This problem had been unsolved by mathematicians for 300 years. It looked so simple, and yet all the great mathematicians in history couldn't solve it. Here was a problem that I, a 10-year-old, could understand, and I knew from that moment that I would never let it go. I had to solve it. Before I talk more about Wiles, I need to take a moment to talk about a conjecture which arose in the 1950s, named after the mathematicians Shimura and Taniyama. It was not developed in any way as a potential route to solve Burma's last theorem, but instead began as an investigation into the concept of elliptical curves in the field of topology. I think it's very hard to explain what topology is succinctly, but I will try my best. Topology is the study of the properties of surfaces which remain the same regardless of how much that surface is stretched or twisted. Shapes can be continuously distorted, but you can't add any tears or holes. To a topologist, the surface of a donut is the same as the surface of any ring, or even the surface of a mug. But all of these are entirely separate from the surface of a football. By the 1970s, the Shimura-Taniyama conjecture was an incredibly powerful hypothetical tool, but it remained unproved. Hundreds of mathematical papers had been written that began with, assuming that the Shimura-Taniyama conjecture is true, and further results had been built on these papers. There was a whole area of mathematics built on the idea that this conjecture was probably true. But that isn't enough when it comes to mathematics. In 1985, a mathematician called Gerhard Frey made the connection between the Shimura-Taniyama conjecture, an idea about the fundamental properties of space, and the centuries-old puzzle of Fermat's last theorem. This connection was later proved by Ken Ribbett and can be summed up as, if Fermat's last theorem is false, then the Shimura-Taniyama conjecture is too. 
So let's return to Wiles. Although Andrew Wiles was inspired by Fermas Las Ferum as a child, it would be many years before he could get to his proof. He studied his undergraduate degree at Oxford University before moving back home to Cambridge for his doctorate. But he didn't touch Fermas Las Ferum in this time. He said, The problem with working on Fermat is that you could spend years getting nothing. So when I went to Cambridge, my advisor, John Coates, was working on the Uwasawa theory of elliptical curves, and I started working with him. You may notice that this area of study is the same one in which the Shimura Taniyama conjecture sits. Although he did not know it yet, Wiles had found himself studying something very closely related to his childhood dream. After achieving his doctorate, Wiles had eventually taken up a position as a professor at Princeton University. It was here where he heard about Ken Ribbett's proof and immediately decided it was time to return to his old interest. Most mathematicians were of the opinion that the link was interesting, but that the Shimura-Taniyama conjecture was so inaccessible to current mathematics that it would be impossible to prove for a long time. But for Wiles, it was all the motivation he needed to abandon all of his other research and focus solely on proving the theorem that had captured his imagination as a child. Unusually for a mathematician, Wiles decided to work on the problem alone, retreating to his own study whenever he didn't have to attend his obligations at the university. Mathematics is, by nature, usually a very social pursuit. Talking through problems and explaining attempts at solutions is usually the way that mathematicians progress. But for years, Wiles told nobody that he was working on the famous problem. He has said, After a few years, I realised that talking to people casually about Fermat was impossible because it generated too much interest. And you cannot focus yourself for years unless you have this kind of undivided concentration which too many spectators would destroy. During this time, Wiles got married and, on their honeymoon, he did explain to his new wife exactly which problem he had been working on and why it was so significant. It was now when he decided that he only had time for Fermat and his growing family. He found that spending time with his young children was the best way to unwind. They just weren't interested in asking him about Fermat. References to Fermat's last theorem have made their way into mainstream media in a way that mathematics rarely does. In 1989, an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation made reference to the problem. It was set over three centuries from now and ends with a line. Like Fermat's theorem, it is a puzzle we may never solve. This was broadcast during the seven years that Wiles worked on the problem alone, and I have to wonder if he ever watched this episode, and what he would have thought. Eventually, in 1993, Wiles confided in two other mathematicians that he nearly had a complete proof of Fermat's last theorem. So, without officially announcing this exciting news, 
Wiles gave a series of three lectures at a conference at the Isaac Newton Institute in Cambridge. Rumours flew around the conference as it went on, and as a result, the final lecture was crammed full of mathematicians and cameras. The director of the conference had a bottle of champagne at the ready in the lecture hall. Then, at his final lecture of the series, on the 23rd of June, 1993, Wiles concluded his lecture by writing the statement of Fermat's last theorem on the board, turning to his audience and rather unceremoniously saying, I think I'll stop there. There was a strong applause from the audience. They had seen history being made. Finally, someone had solved the problem that had taunted the mathematical community for so long. But unfortunately, Wiles had just added another incorrect proof to the long list of attempts. After submitting his accompanying paper for publication, it was assigned six referees to check it. This in itself is a reflection of the huge range of complicated mathematics that Wiles had used in his proof. Usually, papers will be assigned two or three referees who are experts in the field. But this paper required such a range of expertise to check it. One of the referees was Nick Katz. He found an error that was so subtle that it can't be explained here, not least because I'm not really capable of understanding it. Wiles has said, Even explaining it to a mathematician would require the mathematician to spend two or three months studying that part of the manuscript in great detail. Wiles and his referees kept quiet, but as the months went on, rumours were flying about exactly why the paper hadn't been published. Wiles worked on fixing the proof with the help of the mathematician Richard Taylor. He found this year incredibly difficult, describing the process as an overexposed way of doing mathematics. Wiles said he loved every minute of the seven years he worked on the problem in private, but he wouldn't wish to repeat the period that followed. And I can't blame him. Eventually, on the brink of giving up, Wiles fixed his proof, 14 months after he had originally announced it. Suddenly, totally unexpectedly, I had this incredible revelation. It was the most important moment of my working life. Nothing I ever do again. It was so indescribably beautiful. It was so simple and so elegant. And I just stared in disbelief for 20 minutes. Then during the day, I walked around the department. I'd keep coming back to my desk to see it was still there. It was still there. At last, Wiles's paper, Modular Elliptic Curves and Fermat's Last Theorem, was published in 1995, finally proving the little note in a margin of a book that had fascinated mathematicians for nearly 350 years. Wiles has been awarded many prestigious mathematical awards and positions in the years since. He holds the 2005 Shaw Prize for Mathematical Science, a position as a foreign member to the National Academy of Sciences in the US. The asteroid, 
9999 Wiles was named in his honour, and he even has a knighthood from the Queen. Not only this, but Wiles paved the path for a full proof to the Shimura Taniyama conjecture, which was finally achieved in 2001. And his proof is full of exciting new ideas and tools that mathematicians can now make use of to attack problems that were previously unmanageable. You might consider Fermat's last theorem to be a small oddity, a fun puzzle with a difficult solution, but the mathematics that was unlocked by all of these hours of study is beyond extraordinary. But I think that for Sir Andrew Wiles, nothing could compare to the feeling of satisfaction he has gained from fulfilling his childhood dream. I could go on for hours about how extraordinary it is to think that a problem set by a man who did mathematics alone in rural France was solved after centuries by a mathematician who also worked alone. About how many people have been inspired to pursue number theory because of this challenge. About how many people that still might be inspired. I could descend into enthusiastic rambling about how this story is frequently the thing that makes me decide to spend an extra five minutes on a problem because it's not unsolvable until I've locked myself in a room with it for seven years. Or about how many big things someone can achieve while they're focusing on something small. But, as Andrew Wiles said, to a room crammed full of excited mathematicians in his lecture in Cambridge, having finally presented his proof of Fermat's last theorem, I think I'll stop here. My name's Sarah Osborne and I'm project manager for the LitFest and have the great honour of talking to Amy, whose podcast you've just listened to. Uh, Amy, could you introduce yourself, please? Hi, so my name's Amy Winder. I'm from Wakefield and I am a mathematician and creative. Thank you very much. Um, So we'd like to just know a little bit more about the podcast. Uh, How did you find the process of writing and recording it? So the process of recording it has been a bit different for me compared to all the other people you've been listening to because I have been working on recording it and directing the other episodes. Um, But the process of writing it has been very interesting for me because this is a story that I have known for absolutely years. Um, And actually it's something that really informed the way that I've researched it because my favourite ever book, Fermat's Last Theorem by Simon Singh, is a book that I've read many, many times. And I was really careful when I was researching not to use that as a source because I didn't want to just copy down what I already knew and what Simon Singh had written, Um, which was really, really great because it meant that I came across all sorts of new bits of information that I'd not heard before. And one of the sources that I found very helpful and somewhere that I'm going to be spending a lot of my time from now on is a site called Maths History um, that's by St Andrews University. And that's just got pages and pages of mathematical history in it, which is amazing. 
Thank you. Your passion for the subject comes through in the podcast, but also just as you're talking about creating the podcast, which is which is really brilliant to listen to. But I'm just wondering, when you had the idea of uh, making your own podcast, were there any other stories that you considered talking about? Yes. So the decision about who to talk about was a very difficult one for me because I still remember the first time I heard a female mathematician's name spoken in a lecture. And I remember how brilliant that was because although obviously I knew that women could be mathematicians, for so much of my time in education, it had been only men's work that I'd been learning from. And I did really want to share these stories of these women who sometimes had been completely excluded from all academic institutions and still managed to progress mathematics in this incredible way. And the reason why I finally decided that um, I was going to tell the story of Andrew Wiles was because I happened to know other people were talking about women, about people who had overcome struggles, and that I felt free to be able to talk about something that had inspired me, regardless of the fact that Andrew Wiles and Pierre de Fermat both came from incredibly privileged positions. Thank you. Um, I, I, having talked to you, I realised that you were you were desperate to fight the cause of female mathematicians. Um, and I think you're right. In, if you look at the podcast as a series, there is a place for the for the Andrew Wiles story amongst those stories of women who who've overcome those struggles. And um, so, just as a flight of fancy. If you had the chance to work with Andrew Wiles, would you take it? And, and and I suppose, do you think that it would be an enjoyable process? I think if I had the chance to work with Andrew Wiles, I would be so completely out of my depth that it would be embarrassing. Um, it would definitely be very cool to meet him and maybe ask him to teach me something about maths. Um, and maybe one day I'd be able to... Um, contribute to some mathematics with him but it seems unlikely <laughs> and and um, finally I know you're at, almost at the start of your podcasting career which is really exciting so is there any other work we can direct listeners to that you're you're in the process of creating well at the moment the main thing that I've been doing is actually social media producer for Litfest so you our listeners have probably seen that if they're listening if not then please send me a message and tell me how you found this podcast um so you can find me on those social medias but anything that i do in the future i will put on my twitter account which is at oddly amy and you might hear podcasting you might hear maths you might hear comedy you might hear whatever else pops into my head <laughs> that's brilliant thank you so much amy and it's been fascinating listening to your podcast and finding out about your inspiration Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Today's episode of Who Came Before was written and performed by Amy Winder, with theme music by Bren Munler. It was directed by Sarah Rosborn and produced by Amy Winder for Wakefield Lit Fest, a literature festival funded by Arts Council of England and IBE. Find out more, find us on Twitter, at WakeyLitFest on Instagram, at Wakefield Blood Fest, or search for us on Facebook. Thank you again for listening.